morning, Emmanuel. Would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. And uh, this will actually be our last time in Matthew for some time. Uh, next week, one of our Emmanuel Network partners, Todd Morikawa, will be with us uh, to preach God's Word. I love to hear Todd preach, and I think you will as well. And then as we head into the Advent season, I was thinking about the hobbits who asked about a second breakfast in addition to first breakfast, and uh, thinking that we haven't spent any time in recent years. We've been thinking about Advent, but we don't always think about second Advent. Uh, but historically, the church has often thought about the second coming of Christ at Christmas time. And so we'll be doing that over the course of this Christmas season, thinking about not just Christ's first coming to Bethlehem, but His second coming in power uh, really to establish His eternal kingdom. And so that, I hope, will be encouraging to us over the Christmas season. This would be the morning, if you're so inclined, uh, to make sure that no one's lonely on Thanksgiving. Uh, many of you are planning uh, celebrations. Many of you will be in town. Some of you won't. Uh, but if you spot someone who's not near family, or even if you just ask around and ask if maybe there's someone anyone's aware of who's going to be alone uh, this coming Thursday, this would be a great time to invite them over and just extend that kind of hospitality uh, to them through this uh, holiday season. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's Word. Father, we ask that You would give us grace this morning to both preach and hear in the power of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can take severe words and apply them to us with the weight and the glory and the balance, with the cutting edge and the healing balm that they deserve. Would You please work through our weakness, weakness in speaking and hearing, to make sure Your voice, the voice that made the world and shapes the church, we pray, Lord God, that You would Speak to us by Your Word in the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. This morning, as we look at Jesus' words about lust, I feel as though I am preparing to battle the devil and all of his demons. Throughout the history of the world, the major stronghold that Satan has always exerted has come through sexual immorality. And in America in 2022, his strategies to pull men, women, and even the smallest children into the deadly seduction of lust are everywhere. I understand that in outer space, black holes pull everything into the vacuum of their power. Even light itself is sucked up into the dark pull of a black hole. That is what life in our day often feels like. The black hole of lust seems to pull all into its darkness, and Christians even feel the light of Christ sucked out of their souls by the dark pull of lust. One preacher reminded me that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and preacher, made the observation 
that when lust takes control, quote, at this moment, God loses all reality. Satan does not fill us, Bonhoeffer says, with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. When lust is present, God is gone. If Bonhoeffer is right, and I think he is, then the godless secularism that's all around us in our time, the utter disinterest in God that characterizes so many of our neighbors, is just a byproduct of what does consume them. The God-erasing seductions of lust. As R. Kent Hughes put it, God disappears to lust-glazed eyes. I feel the depth of the spiritual battle this morning because like you, I live and breathe and have my being in a culture where the appetite for illicit sex is so strong that it's felt in the beat and the lyrics of the songs we hear every day, the titillation and seduction of sex fills our movies and TV shows, the internet is a Niagara Falls full of porn ready to flow into our phones on our laptops at any moment, and the lust we have awakened results in unprotected boys and girls being stolen from all over the planet, shipped to America, and sold to our neighbors to feed our damnable lusts. If you care about slavery, as many have claimed they do in this generation, there is a tremendous slave trade going on in this nation right now. And it's unthinkable to think what those slaves are enduring and how much we need a Wilberforce even to rise up in our own midst to fight till their dying day to end that wickedness. And all of this is not merely happening out there. No sin gets more attention when the guys get together in many gospel community groups. In the counseling rooms, both men and women come burned from the fires of lust. And we practice church discipline. We often find that so many have fallen to their corrosive temptations of lustful desire. Still, in the midst of all this darkness, I'm not without hope. But boy, I needed that last song we sang. Put my hope in God. I know from personal experience that God can deliver sinners from lust. My life before Christ was steeped in lust. I, I saw porn the first time when I was five years old. I went with the mall, to the mall with my older stepbrothers to watch the girls and not just to appreciate beauty, but to cultivate the most degraded passions. My middle school years were awash in porn and perversion. And by high school, I was promiscuous and continually on the hunt to feed my lusts. But in April of 1995, God began to expose my lusts. First, I read Ecclesiastes where Solomon talked about how he'd had all kinds of exotic sexual pleasures and he found them meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless and searching after wind. And I thought, that's my experience too. And then I read Proverbs where the seductive woman and the dope who gets burned by her are described in intimate detail. And I knew that kind of woman Proverbs was talking about because I was the kind of wandering dope Proverbs was talking about. Finally, in my early journeys in the Scriptures, I came to the very passage we're reading, at this we're reading this morning, and it was shortly after reading it and understanding it that I was converted. When I came to the Sermon on the Mount, it wasn't just the lust problem out there. It wasn't just the philosophical problem of lust that Solomon was dealing with. It was the lust problem in here. It was the lust problem Jesus puts His finger on when He says everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I read that and then I read if you give yourself to lust, your whole body will be thrown into hell. For what happens in your mind, your whole body will be punished for eternity. I read those words and they played a key role in driving me to Christ. It was at that time that I came to see that I was a sinner, full of lust, 
and that Jesus Christ had come for people like me. He had come to save sinners. He had hung on the cross for petty lusters who filled their minds with brothels. He had come to die on the cross for me, and He had risen from the dead to save me and deliver me from all the power of all those lusts that I couldn't seem to get any control over. And when I believed in Him, He forgave me, and He began to deliver me from the unstoppable power of lust. Over the next two years, God would deliver me from the power and bondage of that sin and grow me to be a man with eyes and hands for just one woman. Brothers and sisters, it's totally possible. One of the saddest realities is that lust is so all-pervasive that it seems even the church believes lust can never be finally and fully overcome. As much as lust is a lie, that is a lie too. For those who do not and cannot believe God because they are blinded by their lusts, I pray this morning you will see the glory of Jesus. And for Christians for whom lust is still a problem, I want you to see that Jesus is taking, talking to you this morning, His people. And when I say Christians for whom lust is a problem, I mean Christians. Right? Let Him who stand take heed lest He fall. I want you to see that Jesus is talking to us this morning, His people. He's calling us. He's commanding us to come out of the lust that will take us away from Him and will leave us in the fires of hell for all eternity if we do not make a clean break with it. To help us overcome lust, Jesus teaches us three things. First, what lust is. Second, how lust is to be fought. Third, where lust leads. What lust is, how lust is to be fought, where lust leads. First, what is lust? That's what Jesus deals with here in the passage. And He deals with it in the same formula, the same pattern that He established in the last uh, paragraph we dealt with. He begins by quoting the Old Testament law. And He tells us, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He's quoting the law of Moses. A law, honestly, that's written on every man's hearts. A law that says that when you make marriage vows, when you are in a covenant with one woman, any sexual encounters, any sexual escapades, any sexual fantasies outside of that covenant are a violation, a breach of the covenant that you have made with your spouse. You have heard it said. You know this full well, Jesus says. You shall not commit adultery. But then He goes on as He does and He fills out the intent of the law. He brings the law into its fullness. He, he expresses the law at full volume and full light. And He says this, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already... Now listen, if Jesus had said everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent is at a higher risk to commit adultery, we would have all agreed with that. We all know that. If you play the fantasy game, you are likely to act on it. But that's not what Jesus says. He's not giving us wisdom to avoid adultery with our hands. He's expressing that adultery in the heart is adultery. It is the very thing God is concerned about in His holy and righteous and good law. He says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It is a betrayal of the most sacred covenant when we violate it with our hands or with our minds. It is the betrayal of the most sacred commitment a man or a woman can make. 
In sex, a man and a woman expose themselves to each other with the greatest intimacy. They literally see one another. And they bond themselves to each other with the most spiritual cement. They literally become one flesh with one another. And to break that bond tears the soul. To break that bond betrays the heart that was given to another in trust and intimacy. Jesus only intended for sex to happen where that bond is made and kept. Where that intimacy is expressed and then never betrayed. He meant intimacy to be enjoyed in a covenant that says, I will only see all of you after I promise never to leave you or forsake you. To violate that trust, those vows, that intimacy is the great sin of adultery. Now, our culture says uh, that sex can happen anywhere. After a quick hookup on Tinder, in an open marriage, in and out of marriages that are as disposable as plastic cups. But the result of that kind of sexual promiscuity is always broken hearts, trust issues, emptiness, loneliness. You can't bond and break without having it affect your soul. You can't be intimate and then distant without feeling the darkness of loneliness and betrayal. We are not dogs who can just hook up with whoever's in the dog park and then move on like nothing happened. We have bonding souls. Souls that bond as our bodies bond and we will wind up with broken hearts and broken lives and hellish eternities if we act like dogs in the kennel instead of human beings made in the image of God. Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say adultery is a sin. I already mentioned this. Now He says that anyone who lusts after a woman to desire after her has committed adultery in his heart. Jesus teaches us that we have hearts that if we have hearts that want to have sex with someone that is not our spouse, we have already committed adultery. If we set our imaginations on dreaming about adultery, this is what lust is. It's adultery. A betrayal of the marriage vow. A bonding in our minds with someone we have never been bound to by covenant. Now let me be clear here for a second. Jesus is not saying that noticing beauty is a sin. The world is full of beauty, and a lot of that beauty is human, and to notice that beauty is sin. He's talking about the second look. He's talking about the adulterous look. He's talking about the look that says that's not just beautiful, but it's what I want for mine. It's talking about the undressing of another person in the mind. It's talking about taking the privileges that ought only to be given to a spouse and raping that person in your mind in a way that they should never be touched. That's the wicked sin. Some of you are probably aware that the Bible has a word for sex outside of marriage. Sex between two people who are not married. That word is fornication. We've just seen that where sex, where one of the people coming together um, is married, that's called adultery. But there's also fornication. Where people aren't married, there's no marriage involved, and so this is not called adultery, it's kind of called fornication. I just want to say it would be the worst kind of legalism imaginable if you said me and my boyfriend aren't married, so we're not disobeying Jesus' words here. It would be the worst kind of Phariseeism if you were to say, the porn star I watch is not married and neither am I, so this does not apply to me. I hope you won't justify your sin that way. Jesus is not saying fornication is fine, but adultery will take you to hell. No, Jesus is using the illustration of a married man looking at another woman lustfully because that is the most common kind of lust in the world. His words are meant to expose all sinful lust in our minds and hearts as tantamount to sin in our bodies. Now, I want to I make sure we notice something as we, before we move on from this point. What is lust? Lust is adultery. What is lust? It's desiring 
what adultery would accomplish, but doing it in our minds. Meditating on it. Enjoying it. Taking it in in our minds. That is what lust is. It is adultery. But I want you to notice that what Jesus is teaching here indicates a tremendous care on God's part for the part of you no one ever sees. He's not just after your public obedience. He's not just up after you keeping up appearances. He's not just after you keeping yourself out of trouble. He's not just after you giving a stip off your lip and keeping the family together. He's after your heart. What's happening inside of you that no one but God can see? That's what Jesus is after. He's after the very depths of your being. Who you are in the hidden place, as more than one Puritan said, I'm sure, is who you are before God, and that is it. The modern ethics of our day says, if you want to do something that doesn't hurt anybody, there's no problem with that. If you want to smoke pot, no one gets hurt, that's no problem. This kind of thinking is a problem for at least two reasons. First, we might not be as good at knowing what isn't hurting people as we think. The second, and by far the most important problem with this kind of thinking, is that it says, if I'm not hurting anyone, then what's the big deal? Well, the problem is that it misses that we were meant not for ourselves, not for our neighbors, but for God. What are your actions doing to God? Do you know there's no one more sensitive in the universe to what's happening in your heart than God? Not you, not your spouse, not your closest friends. God is intimately and actively and continually aware of every motion of your heart. He knows you better than you know yourself. And He cares more than you care about what's happening where no one can see. Our inner world was made for God's pleasure. Our inner lives are ultimately not private. They are always open to the One who knows all things. And He is deeply interested in what is going on in our hearts. It's true that if you fantasize about another man's wife, you may never act on those fantasies, but your thoughts are known to God. And He cares about what you're thinking. He cares about the one you're thinking about. He is out to preserve his or her dignity, sanctity, holiness more than you are. And He wants the holiness and dignity and integrity of every single human being that was ever made. He wants that upheld in every mind that was ever made. God wants to be exalted everywhere. God wants to be everything in everyone. He wants to be adored and glorified. And He wants His truth to be perceived in the remotest mind. The most hidden secrets of the heart when he says this is my image he wants everyone to say to stand at attention and say and I will treat it as such it's not my plaything. it's not my place for perverted pleasures it's yours God everyone I look at is yours and me the one doing the looking I am yours too everything belongs to God everything is for God God is everything God is the most important thing in every single circumstance and in every mind and so adultery in the mind is adultery because the one who's offended by adultery is God we've got all these politicians telling us that broken families destroy civilizations. It's absolutely true. And it's so secondary. The great sin of adultery is the sin against God. It's God who matters in any and every motion of our hearts. The Bible says man looks on the outward appearance. That guy looks clean cut. That guy looks faithful. That guy looks like he's got it together. That person puts on a good front. Man looks on the utter appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What does He see? What does He see? 
God wants to create people who aren't acting. He wants to create a new people who aren't faking it. God wants to create people who love Him and love His commands from the heart. The goal is not that you convince your parents you're pure and then you sneak into sin. The goal is not that you convince your spouse that you're pure or your church that you're pure and then you sneak into sin. The goal is to be known by God and for God to say, blessed is the pure in heart. They will see God. What are you going to do on your first day in hell? Exult that you tricked everyone but God? Will that be your comfort as the weeping and gnashing of teeth begins? Everybody thought I was pure. Everyone except the one who mattered. Christian, when Jesus calls you to flee lust, He is calling you to what your heart most deeply wants. Remember, you can't separate the parts of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon that was written for the poor in heart, for for those who are pure in heart, for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's a sermon for the born again. There was one book I had in my library called Sermons for the Spiritual Man. Sermons for Christians. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It can affect an unbeliever like me. Sure it can. It can save an unbeliever like I was the first time I read it. But it's for the regenerate. It's for the born again. It's saying your heart has been made new. It it wants to be pure. It hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Now here's what I want of you. Eliminate lust from your heart. Axe it out. Chop it out. Gouge it out. Do whatever it takes. Eliminate it utterly. You will never be happier. Because your heart will be what it was meant to be. A sanctuary for communion with the Almighty, with the Savior, with the Prince of Peace, with the Lord of Love. And beloved, if you hear Jesus' commands to keep all your lust out of your heart, and you're still planning that hookup, still keeping that girl's number in your pocket, still planning to look at that pornography, still planning to dress immodestly to feel someone else's desire for you, then I want to tell you that what Jesus, I want to tell you what Jesus told a man one night in the Gospel of John. You must be born again. You need a new heart. You need a new set of desires implanted in your soul. You can hear Jesus' commands all you want, but if you are dead in your trespasses and sins, they will never have any appeal to you. You must be saved. You must be born again. Christianity is supernatural. It comes in and it makes new people and those new people want what Jesus has got. They long for the teaching He brings. One more application. A little bit incidental, but I hope a great comfort. There may be people in this room, and maybe, there are people in this room who feel a constant dissatisfaction with their sphere of influence. We can get very disappointed by our little lives, our small lives. And on top of having small, insignificant lives that are never going to be documented in world history or church history or maybe not even your family history, it's just that small. You're not even getting a footnote. There can be a sense in which deep, a deep feeling of insignificance and then apathy creeps into your soul. You may be a person who's got to lay in bed all the time because of your sickness. You may have very little opportunity to do this or that because of your limitations. Maybe you could do a bunch of things, but someone else near you is limited, and so that limits you. Beloved, there is still a part of you that is the most significant place in the universe, your heart. And God is watching its every motion. And He is thrilled to watch the drama of redemption unfold inside of you. And if you never influence another person, and if you never get to do anything amazing, and if you never even get to be a footnote to a footnote in anything significant in the world, I tell you what, on the last day, when God knows every detail of what happened in that heart and can tell it to you and reward you even for the great work of sanctifying grace He's done in your life, 
and there will be no more feelings of insignificance. There will no, be no more feelings that only life would have been meaningful if you'd done something big and great. A heart that loves God is as heart as significant as God Himself. It's a heart that displays the glory of God. And even if no one watches all your little battles to keep pure, there's one who does. And he is delighted. And he is thrilled. And the joy that can resonate in his soul is a joy that resonates from one end to eternity to the other. And by the way, there are no ends to eternity. Amen. Second thing. How lust is fought. What is lust? Lust is adultery. How is it to be fought? The next thing we want to see is how fierce we need to be with our bodies if we are going to keep a pure heart. We need to notice how fierce we need to be with our physical bodies if we are going to keep a pure heart. Jesus' goal is for His people to have pure hearts, hearts that are not dreaming about sexual immorality. But the two illustrations He uses for how hard we should fight lust both focus on our bodies. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members, that is the members of your body, than that your whole body go into hell. Now the first thing we need to say about these illustrations is that they are not literal. Jesus is not envisioning any real maiming going on. The early church father, Origen, was brilliant in many ways and not particularly brilliant when he emasculated himself in his pursuit of Christ. That is not what Jesus had in mind. There was a woman in Martin Lloyd-Jones' first church who was wounded from trying to gouge out her own eye. Again, not what we're going for. Do not return next Sunday with patches over one of your eyes. We must remember that Jesus was a preacher. And a very good one, I might add. A preacher with the ability to use vivid, unforgettable language to get his point across. So what was he trying to say if he was not trying to fill the emergency room with maimed and wounded Christians? He was trying to stress how severely we need to fight sin. Sin is an enemy so aggressive, so insidious, so eager to kill us, that it must be killed. It cannot be petted. And Jesus gives us two illustrations that remind us that sin is acted out through the body. It is with our eyes that the fantasies of lust begin. It is with our hands that we reach out to touch the forbidden fruit of another man's husband or wife. The battles in our heart must be fought by taking strict control of our bodies. Now to do this, we need to really think. First, we must realize that our entire lives, brothers and sisters, our so-called spiritual lives are lived bodily. There is actually no such thing as the purely spiritual life. It doesn't exist. You are not a wisping ghost of an individual. We are always soul and body together. Michael Foster makes the great point that when we read our Bibles, what do we use? Our eyes. Our bodies. When we listen to the Bible, what are we using? Our ears. When we just silently pray, there are still actually neurons firing. There is something happening in the physical world. In every motion of our spiritual souls. There is no such thing as the purely spiritual part of our lives. We are every moment of our lives, body and soul. So to deal with the sins we commit in our hearts, we need to take control of our bodies. The idea that you can just defeat your sin by focusing on your soul is a Gnostic idea. Gnosticism is an ancient heresy that said the soul is good, the body is bad. And the idea that you're just going to focus on your soul and get victory is misguided. You've got to take control of your body. 
Listen to the Bible talk about fighting sin. What does it say? The Apostle Paul tells us in the Corinthian letters, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. I've talked to so many men who think that their lust problem, their masturbation problem, is a a 15-minute-a-day problem. I honestly think it's related to the other 23 hours and 45 minutes where there's a complete lack of self-control. It's just for 15 of those minutes, you're alone. But a great growth in self-control in general will result in greater victory in the particulars. Again, think about the way the Bible speaks about fighting sin. Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul literally says, put to death the members of your body. Romans 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You and I have bodies full of sinful passions. Even after our hearts are made new, the Spirit is within us, our bodies are ground zero for the desires of the flesh. Our sinful desires do not float like clouds that cover us in a sin mist. No, it is bodily that we experience temptation. Our bodies are good creations of God, but they are fallen and they are in need of a good resurrection. And until that resurrection, we fight all the lusts that are present in our physical bodies. This may seem too physical to you, but I tell you what, you'll get more victory thinking this way. What do we need to do to avoid sin in our hearts? We need very often to exert extreme control over our bodies. Think about some of the passages in the Bible that speak about dealing with sexual sin. They always involve how you use your body. 1 Corinthians 6.18 Flee from sexual immorality. What does that mean? Don't be where sexual immorality is. Is sexual immorality present? Is she just one hand, is she just one arm length away from grabbing your tie and kissing you? Run away from there. Is he trying to seduce you aggressively? Get out of there. Flee. Run away. Joseph should not have settled down beside Potiphar's wife to do his devotions and some evangelism. It was right to run. Running is the most spiritual thing you can do when in the presence of imminent sexual immorality. Think about Job. He controlled his eyes. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I look at a young woman? A woman approaches you. She's decided that you're going to look at half of her breasts based on what she's wearing. What will you do? You stare her straight in the eyeballs and treat her like the child of God or at least the woman made in God's image that she is. And you do not look or sin. Notice this, brothers and sisters. Fighting for the purity of our hearts involves the body. But not just any body but your body. Did you notice the way the passage speaks to us? It's so radical and free of legalism. Isn't it striking? If your right eye causes you to stumble, you gouge it out. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, you cut it off. But guess what? What makes you stumble might not be what makes me stumble. And what makes you stumble might not be what makes me stumble. And very often what we do is we get a little, you know, one guy says, you know what, whenever I'm on Netflix, I can't just scroll through it. The minute I see someone scandally clad, I'm pushing that thing. I'm looking for the, the movie with nudity. I'm all in. And so what does he do? He tells all of Christendom that they can't watch Netflix. Thank you, your Phariseeism. We appreciate you. How helpful you've been to all of us. You have to recognize where you struggle. And then you have to get severe where where you struggle. You need to get, you need to do a post-mortem on the last time you fell. What happened? Where was I? What was I looking at? What enticed me? And I need to make no provision for my flesh in those ways. This last Wednesday, we saw a couple who had fallen into sexual immorality restored and gloriously baptized. We saw a man who's cheating on his wife disciplined 
After the meeting, I had another man walk up to me and tell me, you know, I've quit three jobs in my life to avoid sexual immorality. Now, you might say, well, maybe you should just build some boundaries before you need to quit. Well, that's probably true, but he's still a married man. It seems extreme to do many things that it will take to stay pure, but it will not seem extreme in eternity. I can't tell you how much must-see TV I've missed over the years. Am I missing out? My wife and I do not think so. Are you watching anything that would cause you to lust? Don't even finish the season. Are you wearing clothes that get the attention of the wrong kind of guy or give you the wrong kind of joy? Put something else on and throw those clothes in the trash. We must all fight to the death to walk in the purity of heart Jesus calls us to. Now I'll say one more thing to married folks before I move on from this last point. We must understand that we have a responsibility to help one another in this. Sometimes we act like we are married in utopia instead of married in a fallen world. The couple that thinks they're married in utopia are shocked when they learn that their spouse faces alluring temptations. Like, you need to gouge out your eye? What are you looking at? They are disgusted at the thought that their tempted spouse might need their help to resist temptations. They feel dirty at the idea that coming together with them could be part of fighting sin. We ought not to feel this way at all. We are all sinners. And the remedies for our sin are not about never facing any temptation. No, we must remedy sin by making sure our desires are only satisfied in healthy and holy ways. And that means when one or both members of a marriage are tempted, they ought to be eager to help each other walk in purity. Or maybe let me put it to you the way Paul said it. Because sexual immorality is so common, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife. And that does not mean taking out the trash. He should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife. Or as other translation puts it, give her her conjugal rights. And likewise, a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Beloved, if you do not intend to give your body to someone else for the duration of an entire marriage, don't get married. That's what marriage is. It's a major part of it. It's this giving of yourself to another for a lifetime. Do not deprive one another sexually except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Hey, you want to stop for a while and just pray? No, I'm not really into that. Okay, let's not do it. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now listen, I believe that every person is responsible for their own sexual purity, but you can make it harder on someone. You can. You can throw them out to the devil's own temptations. You can. Well, I'll come back together with them once they've grown a little bit. Well, good luck. Maybe Satan will have a thing or two to say while you kick him or her to the curb and wait for them to grow a little bit more you may actually be subjecting them or at least exposing them to temptations that will make them even worse than they were before. Throughout the ups and downs of marriage, we should come together so that Satan does not have his way with us. Well, let's look at our last point. Where does lust lead? Where does lust lead? The last thing we're going to focus on is a forgotten motivation for fighting sin. Brothers and sisters, it is good to fear hell. Jesus regularly brought before His people 
the fact that if they do not fight sin, they will go to hell. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon preached particularly to believers. Of course, there were crowds present and unbelievers were listening, but Jesus is primarily speaking to His disciples, and He says to His disciples, if you don't listen to Me, you will go to hell. So you can be in the visible church, identified as a disciple, but if you don't listen to Jesus, you don't get a free pass to heaven. If you don't listen to Jesus, you will be subject to the fires of hell. How could I be a faithful pastor and not warn this congregation that if you give yourself to sexual immorality, you will endure the eternal fires of hell? Do we even believe there are the eternal fires of hell? Jesus preached on them a lot. Matthew 25, 41, He said to unbelievers, depart from Me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It is not a place where you burn up and then you're gone. No, it's a place where the sexually immoral and all the wicked are, Matthew 13, 50, thrown into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The book of Daniel calls it a place of eternal shame. I honestly believe that we do not see the kind of fighting we need to see against lust because we're too sophisticated to preach hell. We're too sophisticated to say to one another in our small groups and our gospel community groups, do you not realize where this leads? This doesn't just lead to ruined marriages. This doesn't just lead to losing your integrity with your kids. It doesn't just lead to the breakdown of civilization in America. It leads to an eternal fire under the wrath of God where you feel the weight of your shame unrelentingly. Say, isn't it bad to be afraid of hell? Well, let me ask you this. Is it bad to be afraid of real danger? I thought Parenting 101 was teaching your kids where there was real danger. Certainly Pastoring 101 is reminding all people where there's real danger. Hell is the eternal home of all who will not flee sin. The Gospel of Christ says to us that Jesus has died to pay for our sins, to take the punishment of, of hell upon Himself. The Gospel of Christ says He's washed away our sins and our sins are covered and the power of the Holy Spirit has given us to obey. And if we do not grow in obedience, we will, be we will not be saved and we will die in the torment of hell forever. Someone says, wait, wait, wait. Why don't you tell me more about the love of God? Okay, I will. Here's the love of God. He rescues you from hell. He dies on the cross to save you from the penalty of the hell, and then He teaches you how to live and gives you the power of the Holy Spirit so you will walk away from the ways of hell. This is the love of God. It's the true love of God. I wonder if being wiser than Jesus is one of the reasons we're seeing the plague of pornography continue in our churches. Let me plead with you, brothers and sisters. We are saved by grace alone, and that grace produces holiness. And without that holiness, no one will see the Lord. Unless you embrace the Gospel and it empowers you to obey, you will never escape the eternal lake of fire. This is what being a congregation to each other means. It means recognizing that you have bound yourself together with a company of humans who understand something of the weight of eternity, of heaven and hell. And that we pledge to one another that we will warn each other daily as long as it is called today so that none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins, but all of us will make it home to that safe shore in heaven. Brothers and sisters, right now missing a show, resisting a click that will lead to passion, it all feels like missing out on the world. Right now dressing more modestly, so as to not stir up the lust that will send others to hell. It feels constraining, limiting, prudish. Right now, turning off the music that celebrates the steamiest, most enticing sex feels like missing out on life's passion. 
But if you give all this up to avoid the hell of fire, you will never, not for one minute in eternity, feel that you missed out on even one single thing that's good. No, you will be glad you left sin behind so you could avoid hell and taste the forever sweet, pure joys of heaven. No one ever sees the face of Jesus and says, I wish I'd just had one more look back on earth. Never happens. Oh, Emmanuel, let us flee lust together. And all that encourages it, let's see it for the sin it is and fight like the threat it is and run from the hell it would take us to by running again to Christ for forgiveness and the Spirit for empowerment. And if you're someone here who's been given to lust, I want you to take the full weight of this if you're in a marriage relationship and think about it. Because very often what happens is you've got one or both members of a marriage that are given to lust, and they don't take the full weight of it, so when they disclose this to their spouse, they're surprised and angry by their spouse's reaction. It is adultery. They feel betrayed because they have been. They feel hurt because they have been. They feel like you're cruel because you are. And the only answer is to humble yourself and ask for mercy from God and man. God will give it. And I pray that every person you confess it to will give it as well. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would make us a people with not even a hint of lust in our midst. That we would fight temptation with such severity that we may look even foolish in this world. But we would be fools for Christ's sake. And that we would walk safely home to heaven. Lord, I, I have to plead with You. I can almost understand some of the ways people would turn away from traditional sexuality in our day, it's because there's so many abusive sexual perverts in our midst. Those seem like the only marriageable options. Would you raise up young men and women at Emmanuel who could love each other and be faithful to each other for a lifetime? We pray that you do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.